Hello, my name's Alex Rakeen. I'm a barrister at Devon in Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law. And what I want to do with you now is walk you through the judgment of the Supreme Court in a local authority, NJB. It's a very important decision about mental capacity handed down on the 24th of November 2021. And what I want to do with you is walk you through the summary I prepared here of the case, which also includes some commentary at the end. Primarily, I want to kind of really thrash through what exactly the Supreme Court decides, because it's a really important case about the concept of capacity and also how that applies in the context of sexual relations. So as I put here in the first paragraph, this, this critical central question is, does the person in question, JB, but then this goes for everybody, does the person in question have to be able to understand, retain, use and weigh the information that any prospective sexual partner must be able to give, to be able to and to give and maintain sexual consent or consent to any sexual activity that the person's initiating? As I say, that then leads to a really profound question. Is that information that anybody should be able to understand? If it is, it's not going to be discriminatory to say that somebody with a cognitive impairment, SJB has, it's not going to be discriminatory to hold them to that standard. If it's not something we expect everybody to be able to understand, use and weigh, then it won't be discriminatory to hold a person with a cognitive impairment to that standard. So, the factual background to the case is then set out in some detail in the judgment of Lord Stevens, who gives a sole judgment to the Supreme Court. It's very important to understand there haven't been final factual findings in relation to a number of the matters, even if much of the evidence isn't disputed. The kind of critically important thing just at this stage is to emphasize is that the evidence from the experts is that JB, the man in question, can't understand or weigh the concept of consent by another sexual partner and can't do so in consequence of an impairment of his mind. He has, he's autistic. So if that's information that JB needs to be able to understand as a matter of law, the prospective partner's consent, he doesn't have capacity for the purpose of mental capacity. If it isn't information he doesn't need to be, he needs to be able to understand, he would have capacity. If he doesn't have capacity to make that decision, to engage in sexual relations because he can't understand the need for the other person's consent, nobody can consent on his behalf. That's the operation of section 27 of the Mental Capacity Act. So I then just give a little bit of the background to the, to the, to the case where the first judge thinks in essence it would be setting the bar too high to say that the person in question, JB, has to be able to understand using way the need for the other person's consent. Court of Appeal take a different view. The Court of Appeal also reframed the question. JB, in, in the first instance decision, first judge who looks at this, Mrs. Justice Roberts, on, in line with most of the previous judges, talks about consent in the question. The Court of Appeal says, well, it's not really consent because consent suggests agreeing to sexual relations proposed by somebody else. In JB's case, and in many other cases, it's not really a question of receiving someone else's sexual interest. It's actively initiating. So consent sounds a bit odd there. So the Court of Appeal reframes it as capacity to decide to engage in sexual relations. Court of Appeal also makes a significant amount of play, places a lot of emphasis on the fact the MCA doesn't exist in a court protection, doesn't exist in a vacuum. And it also must take into account where relevant the need to protect others. Local authority upheld the decision, the appeal of the, of the local authority against the decision of Mrs. Justice Roberts. The official solicitor on JB's behalf 
then takes the case to the Supreme Court. So, tracking through, Lord Stevens, as I say, gives an overview of JB's factual circumstances. He talks about the effect of JB's impairments on his ability to make decisions in relation to sexual activity. Importantly, he also identifies the expert evidence relating to risks posed by JB to women, including uh, with learning disabilities. And then the consequential risks to JB identified by the experts, including that effectively, if he does do something in relation to a woman who either can't or doesn't consent, he might face violence from others, including friends or relatives of the, the potential victim. He might also face incarceration. He, in other words, he might be convicted of an offence or placed on remand for an offence, which the experts identified could cause significant harm to his mental health. He might be hospitalised. Again, Lord Stevens makes clear, if that is information, if those are reasonably foreseeable consequences for purposes of the Mental Capacity Act, if those are things he needs to be able to understand, then he needs to be able to understand those, as it were, as a matter of law. So it all comes back to what is it, as a matter of law, you need to be able to understand, use and weigh. I should say also retain, that the focus in this case is very much on understanding and using and weighing, if those reasonably foreseeable consequences, including harms to others, and then, as it were, harms back on you, if you need to understand that as a matter of law, that then goes to delineate the scope of the capacity test. And we'll come back to what Lord Stephen says about what, whether or not that is information which you need to be able to understand. He also identifies the fact that there's work being done to try and ameliorate, to lessen the risk that the experts have identified that JB poses to risks uh, to, to, to women, in circumstances where one expert has identified that JB's sole goal, if his account to the expert is correct, is being to have physical and sexual contact with a woman and any woman. And his current care plan imposed in circumstances where, as Mrs Justice Roberts had, had endorsed and then and the Court of Appeal had done thereafter, a care plan based on JB's in, uh, lack of capacity to make decisions about contact, a care plan imposing restrictions on him, including one-to-one -one supervision when out in the community and in particular in the presence of women. So that's the factual framing. We'll, put, we'll step away from that for a moment and then come back to thinking about how things work in JB's case. Lord Stevens takes a step back as well and says, let's think about capacity. Bearing in mind it's the first time the Supreme Court has actually had to grapple head on with the concept of mental capacity. So Lord Stevens starts with an overview of the principles in section one, not just capacity, but also best interests. Interestingly, he makes clear the right to make unwise decisions, which is so often said to be found in section one four, he gives chapter and verse. Chapter, section 1-4 confers a right to make unwise decisions if the person has capacity to make it. So it's not a right to be found in the act, it's a right if you've got capacity. So we need to tease out, do you have capacity to make the decision? He then turns to the concept of capacity itself, recalling that this the Mental Capacity Act concept is a functional one, not an outcome one or a status one. He gives a bit of a history lesson there. He then tracks quite closely the decision of the Court of Appeal, a decision in 2013, in which the Court of Appeal had set out how you actually think about the capacity test. And as the Court of Appeal had said, and Lord Stephen emphasises, you start with 
can the person make the decision themselves? He then has a very important discussion about the fact that you need to ask, can the person make the decision? The only statutory test is the ability to decide. There's lots of other language which is built up in the Mental Capacity Act, person-specific, act-specific. That's not actually what the act says. So you then need to track out and say, well, what exactly are we saying is the matter? What is the decision? Because then that means we can know what is the information relevant to that decision, which also includes what is the information or what is the information about the reasonably foreseeable consequences. So you then have to be clear what the information is. And Lord Stephen has some, Stephen gives some really important clarifications about relevant information in the context or the test, the decision and the relevant information in the context of sex. So the start of a term is ordinarily, you will be thinking about this in a non-specific way, because you're thinking about this in a forward-looking evaluation directed to the nature of the activity, not a particular sexual partner. But very importantly, Lord Stephen says the Court of Appeal was wrong in a case called IM and LM or REM back in 2014 when they, the Court of Appeal said you are only ever allowed to think about sexual consent or the capacity in relation to sexual consent on a general act uh, specific basis, act specific basis, uh, partly for reasons of pragmatism. Lord Stevens just says that's just not true. A, it doesn't always require that. And B, that is contrary to what the act says. And there might well be situations where it can be seen as person specific. Really important this here. So, for instance, sexual relations between a couple who have been in a long-standing relationship where one of them develops dementia or sustains a serious traumatic brain injury. Or it could be person-specific between two people who've got cognitive impairments who are attracted to each other. So don't always just look at this in a generalised way. And then if the facts on the, fa on the facts of the particular case, it's not a generalised assessment, you are then thinking, actually, well, this information could be different. So, for instance, and as TZ had already said, if this is about sex between two people of the same sex, pregnancy is not really going to be an issue. Really importantly, also, he, he flags, we then need to be thinking all the practicable steps may be informed by whether the matter could be described as person-specific. So it might be possible, as he says, to help P to understand the response of one partner sexual partner in circumstances where they might remain unable to understand the diverse responses of many hypothetical sexual partners. So it's really important it is bringing things home to the actual decision, the actual context. Lord Stevens places a lot of emphasis and a really interesting emphasis on the reasonably foreseeable consequences being as part of the relevant information. There are two reasons for this. The first is that the consequences can include consequences for others. That's very important. To date, people really focused in the mental capacity up purely on the consequences for the person. Well, Stevens makes clear you do need, where relevant, to think about, well, what might be the consequences of my action for other people? And the second is that if they're going to be serious, grave consequences to use language to code of practice, you do need to be able to understand the information. He says it's even more important that the person understands the information. I should just make clear that's not saying there is, as sometimes people say, a heightened capacity test. There is only ever one standard of proof before the Court of Protection, 
That is the balance of probabilities. Lord Stephen's already emphasised that. It's just saying we need to be particularly clear. It's particularly important that the person does understand that information if there's really serious consequences. But of course, there is going to be a limit. We don't divorce the decision making, which is kind of under the microscope. The microscope is descended. The microscopes can descend. We don't divorce that from the sort of decision making we expect from people um, of full capacity, as Lord Stevens says. Because if we expect too much of somebody, too more of a potentially incapacitous person than we would expect of a person of full capacity, we are derogating from personal autonomy. So that's the first question, Lord Stephen says. Start with, can the person make the decision? If they can't, then you move on to ask, is there a clear nexus, a clear causative nexus between their inability to do so and an impairment or disturbance in the functioning of the mind or brain? And as I say here, he silently puts to bed an error which has infected the code of practice to date, will be changed, was already going to be changed in the consultation, draft consultation when it comes out in due course, but makes it extremely clear. You start with, can the person make the decision? You don't start with the first of the two stages test set down in the code of practice with this so-called diagnostic element. I mean, just pausing there, remember there is no such thing as a diagnostic element. You don't diagnose an impairment or disturbance in the functioning of the mind or brain. Well, you can, but you don't have to. The critical thing is, is there an identifiable impairment or disturbance in the functioning of the mind or brain? And if you're a fast moving situation outside court, you won't necessarily be sitting down and thinking, this person's just gone into cardiac arrest. I need to identify a diagnosis of whatever it is. You're thinking, do I have a reason to believe this person can't make this decision to consent, say, to CPR because they're unconscious? That ticks the boxes required by the mental capacity. So having looked at JB's situation, zoomed out, thought about capacity, generally, got the test right, Lord, Stephen then, Lord Stevens then turns to all the number of numerous ways the official solicitor acting on JB's behalf says that the Court of Appeal got it wrong. So I'm going to go through these in turn because Lord Stephen effectively goes, Stevens goes through all of the things and then this is why I don't agree with you. You may be, uh, that's a spoiler, for Lord Stevens doesn't ultimately agree or ultimately is not going to find the official solicitor's challenges are made out. So the first limb is the Court of Appeal, official sister says, is wrong to say that the matter is about engaging in sexual relations. Lord Stevens it, it has really it very, dismisses it in very short order, not least because this is the, the point made by the Court of Appeal. This isn't about consent to relations proposed by somebody else. This is about somebody who wants to initiate. But he does make clear that engage includes both my ability to consent to relations initiated by somebody else, and my ability to understand that if I'm going to initiate something, the other person needs to be able to consent and be consenting. And he agrees with the Court of Appeal, this is how we need to think about this normally. So the next limb of the challenge was that the official solicitor says, look, requiring you to have this ability to, that the relevant information, including the other's consent, is effectively giving the NCA a public protection limb it's not supposed to have. Public protection should be down to the criminal law. That's this kind of thrust of it. Lord Stevens doesn't agree, partly because he comes back to the fact the information about the reasonably foreseeable consequences includes consequences for other people. Also, the court 
protection as a public body governed by the Human Rights Act has to think about everybody's rights, not just P, the persons, but potentially the rights of others. And yes, there might be protection available within the criminal justice system for members of the public, but it can't detract from the protection which is provided in practical terms by including in information relevant to the decision reasonably foreseeable adverse consequences for P and for members of the public. In rather coded terms, that's making clear, if you think about it, criminal penalties, criminal punishments, criminal law normally comes in after someone has done something. Thinking about things from this way might be finding a way in which to protect people from somebody who can't understand that what they're doing would be wrong. And in other words, protecting people from harm happening in advance rather than trying to find methods to pick up and redress harm afterwards. The official solicitor also says, look, this test, you recast the test in this way, including this information about the need of the other person's ability to consent and the fact they are consenting, that turns it into a person-specific test. All the case law to date, contrary to the, to the to date of the into the contrary law, even says no, the statutory test is and always has been decision-specific. Most of the time, or a lot of the time, the decision is about a generalised forward-looking evaluation in relation to the person's capacity to have sexual relations with any woman. The fact that the JB in this case needs to understand that any woman he wants to have sex with or in, have sexual activity with needs to be able to consent, that's not making it person-specific. Lord Stevens does remind people that it's not always going to be a generalised forward-looking evaluation. It might be personalised in a way. Official solicitor supported by Respond, a charity for, for providing therapeutic and support services to those with learning disability and autism, says, you're setting people up to fail. These are concepts which are too extensive and too nebulous. And the official solicitor relies upon the legal complexities of the criminal law about consent. And Lord Stevens just, I'm afraid, just doesn't want to afraid. Lord Stevens just doesn't agree. He doesn't agree because he says this is just not, you, we're not expecting people to understand all of the complexities of the criminal law related to consent and about whether or not you might be able to satisfy uh, the defence of having had a reasonable belief in consent after sexual activity has taken place to which, about which someone has complained, the complainant of a sexual offence. It is a clear test. He says they're not too, they're not too nebulous, not too refined. Officials, officials, oh, sorry, the official solicitor on a similar vein says, well, this isn't this requiring somebody to undergo a discriminatory cerebral analysis. In other words, aren't you making somebody with a, with a, uh, who you're, whose decision-making capacity you're worried about, aren't you making them jump through a higher set of, or a, a higher set of hoops, hurdles than everybody else? And Lord Stephen says, well, and this actually in some ways is at the heart of the whole case. And he agrees with the Lord, with the Court of Appeal. This is something which every person engaging in sexual relations must think about. Is the other person consenting? If that requires, if, as Lord Stephen says, if that's properly reviewed as cerebral or in, involving a degree of analysis, then deciding to engage in sex is necessarily cerebral or analytical to that event. So Lord Stevens identifies this, if this is something we expect everyone 
to think about if they're engaging in sex, then it's not imposing a higher burden on somebody with potentially impaired decision-making capacity to ask them to satisfy the same test. Official solicitor then changes tack slightly and says, the way the Court of Appeal has approached things creates an impermissible difference between the civil and criminal law, which to date have been understood as kind of tracking through on parallel paths. Lord Stephen starts by agreeing with, with an observation by Sir James Mumby in, in 2007, when actually this was the 2007 re-MM was the case where Sir James Mumby really started the whole, uh, I was going to say industry, but the whole business of thinking about capacity in the context of sex. Sir James had said there's um, no necessary requirement for the test in the civil and criminal sphere to be the same. He also identifies that, in fact, there are already ways in which the application tracks out differently, for instance, the standard of proof. But Lord Stephen does say, look, in general, I would agree. Everything else being equal, it would be sensible if the two tests should be same. It should be same and should be aligned. And there are good policy reasons for that. And certainly the civil law test for consent should be less demanding than the criminal law. But it's perfectly possible, he says, for the civil law to have a different and more demanding test because there are some really important policy reasons for the clarification of the test for capacity, in particular, the protection of P and the protection of others. So we are thinking about things, he says, we've got to focus on the fact the law is doing different things. The Amendment Capacity Act is doing one thing, the criminal law are doing other things. However, it is important to understand what Stephen then, Stephen then goes on to say, look, I've clarified the civil law, how this tracks out in terms of what the criminal law might be saying about capacity. And really importantly, there are two different things that could be thinking about. Either the capacity of the consent to consent of the, the, the complainant, the person who's been the subject of, I'm going to use the word unwanted, simply to say this is a situation where the person may not have been able to consent to the sexual offence. So that P is victim, complainant, or it might be the person as accused. There may be multiple ways in which capacity tracks out there. Lord Stephen says, I am not going to get into making definitive determinations here. That should be dealt with in criminal cases on the facts of those cases. But he does make a number of observations over to, in other words, these aren't part of the, 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 the binding nature of the decision. He's just tracking out and saying, these are some observations I've got. I'm not saying these are going to be binding on how a criminal court approaches this. And he makes clear there are some ways in which this clarification will create some differences. But they're different concepts. And actually, in some situations, there are going to be bits where people have said, well, actually, this looks like you have created a difference. I don't think there really is much of a difference. So I've set these out here, I'm not going to talk about them now, but they, they, and there, there are further observations in the judgment, but he makes these up over time. So we're not, that's not part of the decision. Lord Stevens then is asked to think about Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, he, he has very little truck with the argument for, for two reasons. One, he says it's not really clear quite what the argument is. Are you saying on JB's behalf that his rights have been breached? Uh, and if so, who are you saying they're being breached by? Or are you talking about how the amount of capacity should be, construct, should be construed, interpreted compatibly with Article 8? As a matter of kind of procedural matter, neither argument was actually advanced before the first judge or the Court of Appeal. So as a procedural matter, the official sister on JB's behalf needed permission to bring them. Uh, and Lord Stevens would refuse permission. 
So on a compatibility basis, uh, Lord Stephen says, well, look, Article 8, the information relevant to the decision, which is the thing in issue, has to be thought about in relation not just to the person, but the interests of others. And also he reminds himself that Section 1.3 says a person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision without, uh, unless all practicable steps have been taken, help them to do so, have been taken without success which he then says, which ensures that the interference with Article 8, if it is engaged, is proportionate. So therefore, the operation of the MCA is compatible with Article 8 for the European Convention on Human Rights. Just pausing there, although it does, it's not expressed, this is completely in line with the approach of the European Court of Human Rights in a case called AMV with and Finland, where the European Court of Human Rights had been challenged um, by an intervention in relation to the operation of Finnish capacity law, which looks very much like English capacity law here, on the basis that that was incompatible with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. The European Court of Human Rights dismissed that argument. This is a similar analysis being applied here by Lord Stevens. Well, had there been a breach of Article 8 on the facts of the case, Lord Stevens says, well, look, there's considerable force in the local authorities argument that there simply haven't been factual findings to ground that assertion, nor has the court got a picture of everything which has been done to support JB to gain capacity to make decisions. Bearing in mind the Court of Appeal had only made an interim declaration and steps have been taken to support, to secure his ability to develop safe relationships with women. In any event, Lord Stephen says, any interference would be in accordance with mental capacity act, in accordance with the law. A legitimate aim would be protection of the health uh, of both his health, mental and physical, and that of others. Also protection of others, the rights and freedoms of others. And there simply haven't been factual findings in relation to proportionality. I'm not going to go there. I mentioned the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities a minute ago, that got featured the argument being that a separate standard being created for people with disabilities in relation to sex, and that would be incompatible with the European with the CRPD. Lord, Lord Stephen says, well, no, there isn't a separate standard. This test applies to everybody. That ground of appeal fails at the first hurdle. He also emphasised that this constitution of the Supreme Court have made very clear they are not interested in arguments based upon whether or not the UK has violated provisions of an unincorporated international treaty. The CRPD, an international treaty which the UK signed up to, has not yet made part of UK law in the same way, for instance, as the, the, the European Convention of Human Rights has been made part of English law um, through the Human Rights Act. But at the start of the 10 is I don't see why there's any differential treatment here. So Lord Stevens goes a kind of one para summary of the information has to include the fact that the other person must have the ability to consent to the sexual activity and must in fact consent. Applying the Mental Capacity Act to section 31A, he's got to be able to understand it, section 31C, he's got to be able to use and weigh it. Applying that test to JB, it looks, Lord Stephen says, as if he's unable to satisfy that test because of the autistic impairment of his mind. But because this information hasn't properly been thought about, as it were, in the evaluative process through the court system because of the way that the case has evolved, it wouldn't be appropriate to make a final declaration. He doesn't have capacity to make that decision to engage in sexual relations. Send it back to the first judge to think about it in light of this Supreme Court decision. 
So I'm now going to give us a few comments. I need to make it very, very clear. This is not about the facts of JB's individual case. This is in part because it's been remitted. It's also in part because I've been part of the local authority legal team at, uh, at the Supreme Court level. So I'm just going to talk broadly about the implications of this decision. I'm not commenting on the fact of this decision as they apply to JB. So I just start by identifying the different ways, different circumstances that the Supreme Court has thought about the mental capacity. And it's the fact it's striking that they've thought about almost all the other aspects, just not capacity to date. But it's perhaps not entirely surprising that the first time they think about it is in relation to sex, because it's one of the most difficult areas. Because this case concerns somebody, and there are lots of people in this situation, who actively wants to initiate sex, it does mean that the court had to grapple with two really important issues very starkly. The first is, unlike lots of other situations where we might be thinking about capacity, this is not about consent to something, like a medical procedure. This is about somebody who might be wanting to do something. And it confronts this really important question, how should the law respond when the person's an active agent? In particular, who by wanting to seek to exercise their agency might harm them someone else. So it's put another way, and securing one person's autonomy might come at a cost for others. This is just so important in terms of the, 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 the MCA is always talked about being this empowering piece of legislation. I'm not 100% sure that's really ever been accurate. Dr. Lucy Series has written some brilliant things and continue to write some brilliant things about its history and how that really isn't necessarily the right, right way of looking at it. But it's certainly fair to say that in most situations, especially court cases, the focus is so much on P, supporting P's autonomy. This case is really important for reminding us that actually, well, no person is an island. What we do might well have implications for other people. Really important. So the second thing I think is hugely important about this decision is it makes it very clear that thinking about capacity involves a normative aspect. In other words, a should aspect. The courts have been clear for ages that we need to be clear about identifying the identification of information. We need to be clear about this because if we ask somebody to understand too much information, it's very easy, I sometimes say in training, to bamboozle somebody into lacking capacity. This case is important for a slightly different reason, because what it's doing is making clear, it's making clear that the choice of information itself is telling us something. Because as I said, at the heart of this case is this very important question. What do we expect as a society people should be able to understand in relation to decision making in respect of sex? I mean, it's a very important question and it's very important Supreme Court really got stuck in. And they had arguments, really powerful arguments put to them by a range of different organisations because there were two interveners in the, in the case as well. So there's the official solicitor, two interveners and a local authority stress testing this. I do just make a comment, it's interesting that Supreme Court were willing to roll up their sleeves and get stuck in, and actually thought this was a really important thing to do. In circumstances, a couple of months previously, the Court of Appeal had said in the Tavistock case, had effectively told the first court off for having done exactly that same thing, identifying information in relation to the dis decision-making by children, in relation to the administration of a, a puberty blockers. I suspect that is going to be thrashed out in due course. Just ob observe that the court really did not have much time for the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, 
I do think it's interesting and important that people concerned with the CRPD grapple with this decision in law reform terms if for no other purpose. First, this implications of this very clear conclusion requiring the same information to be understood by, not, by all is non-discriminatory. I mean, for myself, I, I, it seems to me that must be right. Then the question is, well, how does that track out? How does that track out in real life? And in particular, I think it tracks out importantly in terms of the, the other aspect that Lord Stephen says in relation to Article 8, Section 1.3, we need to be taking steps, practicable steps, to support somebody to be able to understand and weigh the relevant information. That's the critical bit. Otherwise, if you just go too quickly from person can't understand, we're not going to do anything to the same identical capacity, that, is, that would be the missing link there. I also just flag the CRPD debates, especially as I say that the hardline CRPD approach, there's an abolitionist approach, sometimes called that, suggesting that, for instance, mental capacity is simply an invalid context, a concept that was before, but clearly didn't interact the Supreme Court, that debate was put before, Supreme Court didn't have really any truck with it. That's been lots of discussion in the civil context. The criminal context is much less discussed because actually in some ways it raises some much harder questions. If legal capacity must mean the same for everybody, well, how does that track out in terms of legal responsibility? And in a situation such as JB's where it appears he cannot understand that the other person needs to consent, how does that track out in terms of well, what would be the implications for JB's criminal responsibility? What tools would the law have at its disposal to address that situation? What tools would the law have at its disposal to address the situation of somebody if an individual in JB's uh, position carries out a criminal offence or the act, uh, an offence, in other words, initiating sexual activity to which this person doesn't, doesn't want, doesn't consent, but the perpetrator can't, it appears, factually understand that information. How does that track out? So I suggested here, some of these arguments get very abstract. This situation may well be a useful thing to bring all this down to earth and really do some, as it were, almost policy work to think, well, what, if people don't like the outcome of this case, how would they frame it differently? How would they frame things policy-wise differently? The Supreme Court have made the law in England and Wales crystal clear. How does it work? How, if people didn't like that law, how would it, how, 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 what changes would need to be made? So having talked about those rather kind of high level things, come down to some really practical stuff to finish with. So the first thing is any form which talks about a two-stage test starting with the diagnostic element, you've got to revisit. In our guidance note from Chambers for a long time now, we've said code of practice has it the wrong way around. Supreme Court's made this crystal clear. As I said a few minutes ago, the code of practice, when it comes out for consultations, there is, I can, I can tell you, is going to have to reflect this two-stage or reflect the judgment of the Supreme Court because it's the judgment of the Supreme Court. So you're going to have to think about any forms, consider the functional ability first. Two really important points there. The first is, well, actually one really kind of main point there, they kind of linked, but the, the real point is this helps you track through the support principle. If it looks like, if you focus in on what it looks like the person has difficulty doing, you are going to be far better off in terms of saying, well, what can I do to support that person's particular impairment before racing off and finding them to lack capacity? The other reason actually just to focus on the functional one is it does mean insofar as possible, you don't inadvertently slip into discrimination by going, I'm preloading this situation by thinking this person's got an impairment. 
Therefore, I'm going to look to see what they can't do. You're going to start with, there's some reason to think this person can't make this decision. I'm going to dig into it. Support, and if I can't get that person to make the decision, I'm then going to think about what can't this person do and why. Any situation where decisions have been made in relation uh, to sex are going to have to be revisited. In particular, anything which has been done on a so-called generalised forward-looking evaluation basis. But there's a proper reason to think there might be something specific about this person where a different approach needs to be taken. And then the last point is contact wasn't specifically before the Supreme Court. But you can see a world in which there's a closer alignment now between contact and sex. So in other words, there might be the better alignment between the approach to someone's ability to make decisions about sexual relations with a specific person and their ability to make decisions about contact. There might still be cases, though, where on a kind of so-called TZ approach is applied. So in other words, on a generalised forward-looking basis, the person doesn't have capacity to make decisions about sex. Also, they do have capacity to make decisions about sex, so that's the right way around, but they don't have the ability to make decisions about contact with people. So best interest decisions may still need to be made in order to undertake and allow a proper calibration of risk. And that risk could include a risk to as well as a risk um, or risk from as well as well as a risk to the person. So thank you very much for this, uh, for bearing with me during this walkthrough. It's quite long, but the judgment is long because it's dealing with A, the very concept of mental capacity and the test applied in the broadest zone, and then bringing it down to thinking about how to apply that in a really difficult area, sex. And then it's got some really important things to think about the interaction between the civil law and the criminal law. Thank you very much indeed for watching.